I'm, I'm about to stop eating my pop tart. Hold on, put it away. It's within distance. I'm gonna eat it. Your high fat content unfrosted pop tart. You know, surprise Sunday twist. It has icing on it. Steph, who even are you? <laughs> You know, there's a few canonical anchor facts that one knows about other people. And, you know, when one of those. Huh. I like to keep everyone, including myself, on, on their toes. Or you've just secretly accepted that the icing adds another textural flavor adventure component. It's, it's just better with icing. All right, all right, all right. There's a com- complicated answer to this. And the complicated answer to this is that the more organic uh, ingredients that I recognize when reading about Pop-Tarts are by a particular company, and they all have frosting on them. And the more generic Pop-Tarts that don't have frosting on them, I don't know how to pronounce a lot of those ingredients. So I'm like, no, but okay, I still eat them. But I prefer the ingredients I can pronounce. So I am either go with the ingredients I can't pronounce or have a little bit of frosting on my Pop-Tart. And I'm going with the non-cancer route for today. For today, in this moment, and accepting the frosting. uh, Okay, all right. Well, that is complicated. (laughs) It's tricky out there. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Chris Toomey. And I'm Steph Vickeri. And together, we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So, Steph, what's uh, what's new in your world? Hey, Chris. Uh, so, the weather. Uh, I'm going to talk about the weather for a little bit. It's been <laughs> almost nonstop rain for the past several days, uh, which, is, which is fine. I'm sure it's great for, you know, plant life, but it's really hard on my dog, Utah, because then we can't go outside for our normal walks and playtime, although... He is my four-legged water baby because he absolutely loves water and puddles and playing in the rain. So he's he's very fine with going outside and playing for a long time. But then I have to essentially give him a full-on bath before I want to bring him back in. So not wanting to have to give him a bath each time in the spirit of improvising, we started finding more indoor games to play. And I've started teaching him to play hide and seek. And he's not great at it, mainly because he will only stay until I'm out of eyesight, and then he will come and find me. And so I have to be really, really fast at finding a hiding spot to like dash around a corner or hide behind a door. But I think he enjoys it because he will find me and then he seems very excited and we go back and we play again. And so I just have to work on teaching him to wait a bit longer so I can find better hiding spots. When you said that at first, I was like, how did you teach him to hide? But I realize he's only playing the seek part of the game and you're only playing the hide part of the game. I'm just so used to like, you know, you you exchange roles back and forth and just first you hide, then you seek and then you switch it up. That would be a lot to get your dog to be like, now I'm going to secretly hide. And <laughs> I would be very impressed. Yes, we have very distinct roles in this game. I am the one that always counts and hides, but he's a very good seeker. So that's been that's been fun. We just got to work on getting a little better at it. But on a more tech related note, uh, one of the design directors at ThoughtBot, Samira Kapila, who also goes by Sam, was a guest on the podcast Things Worth Learning, which is hosted by Matt Stoffer. And Matt is also the host of the Five Minute Geek Show and the Laravel podcast. And in the show Things Worth Learning, Matt meets with individuals that are excited to share something that they're deeply passionate about. Maybe it's tech, maybe it's not. And I've binged a couple of those episodes, and I really like how you can choose between the podcast format or the YouTube format. 
So then you can really watch the conversation unfold, which I know you and I a couple times have thought it would be fun if people could see us because there's so there's so many like facial emotions and uh, gestures that go along with conversations. So it was really delightful. And speaking of delightful, Sam shared her expertise about management and inclusion. And I definitely recommend listening to the episode because I can't share everything that Sam shared. But a couple of the topics that Sam mentioned that I really enjoyed and would love to chat about. So the first one is about helping someone, in this case, someone that you manage that comes to you with a concern. So there's often a presumption that just because someone comes to you with a concern or an issue that they've experienced at work, that they're the ones that will also want to work to address that concern. And that's often not true. It it can be true. Maybe that person wants to be involved, but they're often coming to you in the leadership or management role to say, hey, I've had this issue and they really want help with that instead of having uh, walking away with homework for it. Because then that trains people to essentially be in this mindset, well, if I bring up this concern, then I'm going to be the one that has to address it. Even if I'm the one that's most negatively impacted by this and addressing this concern could be actively harmful to me. And she shared a really great real world example uh, from her own experience where her and another coworker, uh, they had noticed a concern about the hiring process. And her and that coworker got together. Uh, they talked about the concern. They even rehearsed for the meeting because they were trained by the tech industry to say like, hey, if you bring up a concern that you're going to be responsible for addressing and then resolving that concern. And so they they had that meeting with the person in leadership and they're pretty nervous about how it was going to go. And that person in leadership said to them, thank you both so much for sharing that. That must have been such a burden. And this is my responsibility to fix. And here are what my next steps are. And that was amazing because it allowed Sam and the other person to go back to client work. And they also received follow-up conversations about how that issue was being addressed. So there was even that feedback loop as to how things were going to change. And I have a, a personal example that it just, I really resonated with the example that Sam provided because I remember there are different teams that I've been a part of where often I was one of the few women engineers on the team. And so we'd often have conversations about, you know, how do we get more uh, women engineers into the company? And they're, they're wonderful conversations, but there's a part of me that always felt resentful about like, why am I here? Why am I the one fixing this? Like, I understand, like, I have some more insight and expertise and experience in this area, but I was all also frustrated by the fact that I was the one that was in that meeting often with other women and it felt like our responsibility to fix this. And I used to feel bad about feeling resentful towards that because I was like, shouldn't I want to help other people? And I do. But Sam's really example really helped remind me and clarify that, yes, just because there's a concern doesn't necessarily mean you should be the one to address it. And it really takes everybody involved or it takes leadership to step up and address that concern. Oh, that's really interesting the way uh, Sam's framing that and like describing the situation of not having any problem that you bring in be now your work to solve. Like, oh, I found the issue and now we, we've got to go do this. But the idea that you can sort of bring something to light and then be able to walk away from it. Uh, and the particular thing that you were saying of like it, that if your interaction is always that when you reference something, when you bring in a concern, that then your manager works with you to figure out how you can solve it. Then you get this sort of mental block of like, well, do I even want to say anything? Because like, I don't want to try and deal with big, amorphous, unclear issues. So maybe I just won't even say anything. And so this is a way to make sure that that there's room for all of the conversation uh, is a really interesting framing that I, I hadn't really thought about, frankly, but is very interesting. I, I haven't seen um, this interview either, so I'm definitely excited to to give this a look because Sam is wonderful and uh, the topic that you're describing here sounds fantastic as well. So 
Yeah, there was an important moment for me where one of my managers is Matt Sumner, who's who's been on the show. And when Matt was my manager, at one point, we were having a one-on-one and we would often go for walks for our one-on-one. And I mentioned something about, I have this concern or I have this problem, but I don't really know how to fix it. So I'm not sure I'm ready to talk about it. And Matt in his delightful way was like, we can still talk about it. Like you don't have to have an answer or solution. I'm like, yeah, but I, I feel like I should be able to fix it. You know, like if you have a concern or if you have something that you want to gripe about, then you should come to the table with solutions for it. And Matt was like, no, you don't need to do that at all. We can we can totally gripe about stuff or talk about concerns and then either figure out the solutions together or go to other people for ideas. And that was really important to me because like you'd mentioned, otherwise it felt like this mental block where then it feels like you can't air out some of the things that you're worried about or have concerns about because then you think you're the only one responsible and you may not be able to come up with the best solution. You may need other people to then help you strategize and come up with ideas. So And I just love, love, loved that part of Sam's discussion. And oh, and there was one other part uh, about the conversation. Well, there's lots of parts that were amazing. But another one in particular that blew my mind is about Comic Sans, the font, the font that everyone loves to hate. And I learned that it's one of the most legible fonts for kids. And it's one of the more accessible fonts for people with dyslexia. And it's actually recommended, I think there's still more academic studies that need to be done to really classify fonts that are best for people that have dyslexia. But Comic Sans is recommended by the British Dyslexia Association and the Dyslexia Association of Ireland. And there are some other really great posts uh, that talk about the benefits of using a font like Comic Sans because the typeface has long ascenders and descenders and generous letter spacing and asymmetrical lowercase b and d to then help distinguish those letters. And I just thought that was so cool, this font that everybody wants to, to rip apart because it seems... I don't know, whimsical, unprofessional, it gets overused. Uh, lots of reasons, I suppose, but there's a really big benefit to it and it can help others. And I just found that very whimsical in itself. I love the idea that there's like multiple levels of knowing about Comic Sans. First, you're just like, I don't even know the name, but it's that, that you know, sort of comic book looking font. And then obviously the next step is to be like, Comic Sans, how could you ever use that? It's an atrocity. And then it's like, but actually Comic Sans has some things going for it. Uh, and it is a really interesting consideration and something that you wouldn't necessarily think of. But then once you learn it, you're like, oh, okay, man, I wonder how many other things in the world have this interesting shape to them. Hmm. Do you know the history behind Comic Sans? I do not. I read about it fairly recently, but I'm probably going to botch some of the details. But I believe it was designed or created by Vincent Conair, and it was created for Microsoft. And Vincent was working on a project where I think there was like a a dog that was essentially going to have these bubbles that would then show you different parts of the application and walk you through the different features. And the dog had a very comic book feel to the character. And so then Vincent designed a font to go along with that comic book character, this dog, and came up with Comic Sans. I don't think the dog actually launched with that particular font, but since the font was still developed, it was released as part of the available fonts. And there we go. There was the birth of Comic Sans. And then it just received so much uh, love and ire all throughout history. There is something that you said there that I, I want to loop back on when you're talking about chatting with Matt Sumner and saying, like, here's this thing, but I don't, I don't know how to solve it. So I don't even want to bring it up. I really like the framing that you gave and the fact that Matt was like, no, 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 we can still talk about it. We can at least explore this thing, have a conversation. I think that's really wonderful. There's 
a very similar thing that I experience a lot when doing code review, particularly when I'm in more of a leadership role within a team, which is I often want to highlight something that feels a little bit off to me in the code, but I may not have a specific solution. Like I may see a variable name or I may see a controller action that feels like it's the wrong shape or something. And I'll often name it, but explicitly say, I actually don't have a better idea here, so feel free to continue on with this, but I want to name it so in case that sparks something. And if you were also feeling some incongruousness, maybe it's worth you spending another minute to think about it, but I want to make sure my comment isn't blocking or otherwise making you feel uncomfortable. Like if I just come through and I'm like, this feels wrong, and that's all I say, that to me is unacceptable code review because now I've, I want all of my code review feedback to be very actionable. Either it's, here's the thing that I feel strongly, I think we should definitely change this. If you disagree, let's have a conversation. But like, yeah, this one's a definite needs to change. Here's the thing that like, I don't know, maybe we could break this onto two lines and split it up. But if you don't like that, that's fine. Do whatever. And so then it's I've given the person my thoughts, but given them clarity and free reign to do whatever they want with that information. And then there's the ones where I'm like, I don't even know what I think we should do here, but I think something. But if you don't have any, like, I don't have any ideas specifically, if you don't have any ideas, it's fine. We'll continue on with this and maybe revisit it down the road. But I want to make sure like each of those different tiers is actionable for the other person. And I'm not just like giving them homework or something to be sad about because that would be bad code review. I'm just imagining a PR comment that says, I don't know what we should do here, but I don't think this is it. <laughs> and that's just creating sadness. Uh, that's so interesting to me because I have flip-flopped with that opinion in regards to there are times that I very much resonate and do what you just said, where I will point out to someone where I'm like, I'm not sure why, but I, I just have concerns about this. And I don't know if you also ran into anything that was weird about this and would like to talk about it. I don't have any really great ideas. So I think this is good for now and we should keep moving forward. So we're not blocked on it, but just wanted to, as you mentioned, highlight it in case it sparks something for the other person or for someone else that's reviewing the code. And then there are other times where I'll look at something and I'm like, yeah, it's, you know, it's not great. There's something that feels brittle or potentially maybe hard to maintain or things like that, but I don't have a better idea. And I don't comment on it because I'm like, well, I don't want to distract that person or block them. And I do think it's good enough and I don't have anything to add to the conversation. So I just leave it out. So it's it's interesting to me, where is that, where's that line of when I feel like it's important enough to comment to then potentially spark some conversation versus just letting it go. So then I don't add any distraction to their work. I think it's when the spidey sense gets past 47%. It's a very specific number. Weirdly. No, I think it's, it is, I, I do the same thing where there are some that I'm like, I mean, uh, maybe, uh, you know what? I can't even clearly express what about this makes me feel something off. And so I won't even comment on it. And I agree. And then there are things that trip past some magical line in the sand. And I'm like, you know what? I, I think I want to say something here, but I don't even have a recommendation. And then, you know, there's there's a whole spectrum of the nature of code review. Uh, and again, 47% being the specific number. There's actually a ThoughtBob blog post that correlates nicely to that concept of spidey sense. And it's written by Mike Burns and it's titled How to Skim a Pull Request. But essentially, uh, grabbing from one of the lines here, uh, it's where Mike presents an unexplained, incomplete, and arbitrary grouped list of keywords that will cause us thought botters to read your code with more care and suspicion. <laughs> so that feels perfectly aligned with that idea of Spidey Sense. Spidey Sense 101. I'll be sure to include a link in the show notes. Or, you know, 40%. I think it was 47%. Mm, okay. 
It's a very precise number. <laughs> very precise, nonsensical number. Got it. If I'm making up fake statistics, I'm not going to have them round to an even 10. <laughs> <laughs> Makes it seem more legit somehow. Exactly. But that's really uh, the novelties that I wanted to chat about. And now a quick break to hear from today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is leading-edge application performance monitoring that's designed to help Rails developers quickly find and fix performance issues without having to deal with the headache or overhead of enterprise platform feature bloat. With a developer-centric UI and tracing logic that ties bottlenecks to source code, you can quickly pinpoint and resolve those performance abnormalities, like N plus one queries, slow database queries, memory bloat, and much more. Scout's real-time alerting and weekly digest emails let you rest easy, knowing Scout's on watch and resolving performance issues before your customers ever see them. Scout has also launched its new error monitoring feature add-on for Python applications. Now you can connect your error reporting and application monitoring data on one platform. See for yourself why developers call Scout their best friend and try our error monitoring and APM free for 14 days, no credit card needed. And as an added-on bonus for Bike Shed listeners, Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. Learn more at scoutapm.com forward slash bike shed. That's scoutapm.com forward slash bike shed. What's new in your world? Uh, let's see. I have some follow-up on a recent topic that we talked about. Um, so we had a kerfuffle, which I described, where we had a branch that got merged and the rebase, some stuff got out of hand. And so we introduced some process, uh, the protected branch configuration with GitHub that required the branches to be up to date before they can be merged uh, and CI to be passing. And everybody was happy. It was like, this is great. Turns out it was never turned on. Uh, that's that's actually the day. I was like, man, this is really straightforward. Like we haven't had, there's been no annoyance here. And then I got to the point where I was like, this seems weird because we just merged a lot of things in rapid succession, went and checked. And it turns out what I thought was the name of the branch protection rule in GitHub's UI is in fact a regular expression pattern, might not be a full regular expression, but like a wildcard pattern for the branch name to match to. And so it's specific, like I created this rule and in small gray text underneath it said, this applies to zero branches. I missed that the first time, but then the second time going back, I was like, oh, I actually wanted it to apply to more than zero branches. So I went back in and change that uh it's a great example of very subtle ui that um just slipped past me but i was gonna say in your defense the very subtle gray font to say this applies to zero feels tricky that also going through the work of creating this thing and if that results in zero branches that would match maybe that's a thing to emphasize on creation i would love that because in my case i was trying very specifically to target an existing branch there is the ability to say like oh any bug fix dash star named branch if you're using you know branch naming strategies like that you can use this for that sort of thing so it may be that currently there are no branches with that name but in my case i was just like please main anytime anything is happening on main that is what we wanted to like i just needed to put the word main there but um anyway once i actually turned it on insufferable absolutely not cannot survive in this world uh, we actually we have a relatively small team uh there are three of us and not everyone is even full-time and my time is pulled in a lot of different directions so i'm actually not pushing as much code as i might otherwise even with that nope absolutely not uh, we've our ci is like i don't know five-ish minutes per run turns out especially like monday mornings we have a volley of things that will have been like reviewed and trickled in through friday afternoon 
And then there's a bunch of work we want to land Monday morning. And then just at any point, it turns out, yes, this was untenable. So we have turned it off. Um, I would like to revisit this down the road and introduce the merge queue functionality. So the idea of being able to say, like, yeah, I, you just name when you want something to go in. And then the system will manage the annoying finicky work there. But for now, I had to give up on my dream of uh, everything running on CI on a feature branch before it gets merged. Oh, that phrase, I had to give up on my dream. That breaks my heart for you. <laughs> I may be going a little bit fanciful with my language, but a li- I like a little. I liked, <laughs> I liked this thing. I want to exist in that world, but it is not feasible given the current state of the world. And that will only get worse over time is my expectation. So I get to revisit this when I have the time to more thoroughly figure a thing out. But for now, for now, I don't know, merge, whatever. It'll be fun. There's a small part of me that feels a little reassured that it was a terrible time, although I hate that it was a terrible time, but I I have felt that pain on so many other projects where I am constantly waiting and I'm constantly checking to be like, can I merge, can I merge, can I merge? And then I can merge, but then someone beats me to it and I'm like, ah, then I got to restart and I got to wait and I'm constantly checking. So that feels like it helps validate my experience. I am excited for that merge queue. I I would be super excited to try that out and hear about how it goes just because that seems more like the dream where you can just say hey i want this pr to go whenever it can go just take care of it i want it to be rebased whatever the flow is and have it be merged so i don't ever have to to check on it again once we configured this there was a new thing that appeared in the github ui which was auto merge and so that was a button where i could say like hey merge this whenever ci passes which was a nice upgrade but it didn't have the additional logic of and rebase as necessary or the more subtle logic of like you don't actually want a rebase fight where you have five different branches that are all trying to merge and they keep rebasing you want to have the idea of a queue and so you get in line and you rebase when it's your turn and then you run the ci and you know you try and be as smart as possible about that if anyone at github is listening i would love if y'all threw this into your platform and then could like ping slack if anything went wrong but Otherwise, there are, like I said, the existing tools. At some point, I will probably, I don't know, over a long weekend or something like that, uh, sit down with a large cup of coffee and explore these. But that is today is not that day. So well, I'm excited to hear about that day. So that is a tale of woe and sadness. But luckily, I get to balance it out with a tale of happiness and good outcomes. So that's good. The happiness and good outcomes story does start with trouble, as they always do. So we had a bug that occurred in the application where uh, something was supposed to have happened, and then there was an email that needed to go out to tell the user that this thing had happened. And the bug popped up within AppSignal and said uh, something was nil that shouldn't have been nil. Particularly, we're using a gem called Time for a Boolean, which is by Caleb Harth, and uh, he's a former ThoughtBotter, and maintains this wonderful gem that instead of having a Boolean for like, is this thing approved, or is it paid, or is it processed, you use a timestamp, and then this gem gives you nice Boolean-like methods on top of that timestamp. Because it turns out, very often just having the Boolean of like, this was paid, turns out you really want to know when it was paid. That would be a really useful piece of information. Uh, And so while you're still in Postgres land, uh, it's nice to be able to reach for this and have the affordances of the Boolean-like interface, but also have the timestamp where available. So anyway, the email was trying to process, but that timestamp, let's pretend that it was paid as the one that, that matters here. So paid at was nil. 
which was very concerning because this was the email that's like, hey, that thing was processed. Or let's say it was processed, actually, because that's closer to what it was. Uh, hey, this thing was processed. And here's an email notification to tell you that. But the processed at timestamp was nil. I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. And so when I saw this pop up, I was like, this is very bad. Everything is very bad. Oh, goodness. Turns out what had happened was because I, I very quickly chased after this, looked in the uh, background job queue, looked inside Kix UI, and the job was gone. So it had been processed. I was like, wait a minute, how? How did this fix itself? Like, that's not the kind of bug that resolves itself. Except in this case, it was. This was an interaction that I've run into many a time before. Uh, Sidekick was immediately processing the job, but the job was being enqueued from within the context of a database transaction. And the database transaction had not been committed yet, but Sidekick was already off to the races trying to process. So the record that was being worked on, the database record, had local changes within the context of that transaction, but that hadn't been committed. Sidekick then reads that record from the database, but is now out of sync because of just that tiny bit. Sidekick is apparently very fast, off to the races immediately. And so there's just this tiny little bit of time that can occur. And this is also a fun one where this isn't going to happen every time. It's only going to happen sometimes. Like if the queue had a couple other things in it, Sidekick probably would have not gotten to this until the database transaction had fully closed. So the failure mode here is super annoying. But the solution is pretty easy. You just have to make sure that you enqueue outside of the database transaction. But I'm going to be honest, that's, a, that's difficult to always do right. That's a, a gnarly bug or something to investigate that I, I don't think I have run into before. Um, could you talk a little bit more about enqueuing the job outside the database transaction? Sure. And to be honest, I, I think I've talked about this on a previous episode a while back because I, I have run into this one a few times, but I think it is uh, sufficiently rare. Like you need a almost a perfect storm because the database transaction is going to close very quickly. Sidekick needs to be all that much more speedy in picking up the job in order for this to happen. But basically the idea is within some processing logic that we have in our system, we find a record, we do some work, and then we need to update that record to assign this timestamp or whatever it is. And then we also want to inform the user. So we're going to enqueue a job to send the email notification. But for all of the database work, we are wrapping it in a transaction because we want it to either succeed or fail atomically. So there's like three different records that we need to update. We want all of them to be updated or none of them to be updated. So therefore, we wrap it in a transaction. And the way we had written this was to also enqueue the job from within the transaction. That wasn't something we were actively intentionally doing because those are different systems. It doesn't really mean anything, but we were still within the block of application record dot transaction do. We're now inside of that block. We're doing all of the record updates. And then the last piece of work that we want to think about is enqueuing the job to send the email. The problem is, if we're still within that database transaction, if it's yet to be committed, then when Sidekick picks up that job to run it, it will see the prior state of the world. Uh, and it's only if the Sidekick job waits a little bit that then the database transaction will have been committed. The record is now updated and available to be read by Sidekick in the correct updated state. And so there's this tiny little bit of inconsistency that can happen. It's basically because Sidekick is going out to Redis, which is a distinct system, doesn't have any knowledge of the database transaction at play. That's why I sometimes consider using a Postgres-backed background job system, because then it actually the job can be as part of the database transaction. But Cool. That's helpful. That, that makes a lot of sense the way you explained the whole, like you're actually queuing the job from inside that transaction. Um, I'm curious, that prompts another question. 
In the case where you mentioned you're using a transaction because you want to make sure that you fail if something fails to update, so everything gets updated together. In the event that something does fail to update because you were previously in queuing that job from the transaction, does that mean that the update could have failed, but that email would have still have gone out? Uh, that does not. And the reason for that is because we're within dry monad world. And so dry monad will implicitly capture the active record rollback, which I think is an exception that gets raised or somehow. But basically, if that database transaction uh, fails for any reason and ends up getting rolled back, then dry monads will not continue processing through the rest of the sequential operation. And so therefore, even if we move the enqueuing of the email outside of the database transaction, the like sequential nature of that processing and the dry monad stuff that we have in play will handle that. And I think that would more generally be true because I think Rails raises an exception on rollback. Not certain there, but uh, I know in our case, we're fine on that. And we have actually tests that explicitly check for that sort of thing. So I meant a slightly different question, because that makes sense to me, everything that you just said, where if it's outside of the transaction, then that sequential order won't fire because of that active record migration error. But when you had the enqueuing inside of the transaction, because then that's going to be inside of the sequential order, maybe before the rollback error gets raised. Does that make sense? Yes. Uh, I think what you're asking is basically like, do we make sure to not send the job if the rest of the stuff didn't succeed? I'm just wondering from a transaction perspective, actually, if you have like a transaction wrapped block and then you have in there like update this record, send email, end block, let's say update. Well, I guess it's going to raise because you've got probably like an update bang. Okay. So then, yeah, you won't get to the next line. Got it. Got it. Got it. I just had to walk myself through that because I forgot that you're probably I have to visualize it. <laughs> <laughs> as to what that code probably looks like. All right, that answered my question. Okay, so back up to the top level then. This is the problem that we have. And looking through the code base, we actually have it in a bunch of different places. So the solution in any one of those cases is to just take the line of code where we're saying in queue, you know, user mailer dot deliver later, take that line of code, move it outside of the database transaction and make sure it only happens if the database transaction succeeds. That's very easy to do in one case. But my concern was, this is a very easy failure mode to end up in. This is a very easy, incorrect version of the code to write. As far as I can tell, we never want to write the code where this is happening inside of the transaction because it has this failure mode. But how do we enforce that? That was the thing that came to mind. So I immediately did a quick look of like, is there a RuboCop thing I can do here or something? And I actually found something even more specific, which was so exciting to find. Uh, it's a gem called Isolator. And its job is to detect non-atomic interactions within database transactions. And so it was fantastic. I was like, wait, really? Is this going to do the thing? And so I just installed the gem, configured it where I wanted, and then ran the test suite. And it showed me every place throughout the app right now where we were doing this pattern of behavior, having like enqueuing work from within a database transaction, which was great. Ooh, that's really nifty. I, I kind of want to install that and just run it on my current client's code base and see what I find. This feels like uh, something like strong migrations where it's like, yeah, this is great. I just I kind of want to have this as part of my core tool set now. This one feels even perhaps slightly more so because sometimes I look at strong migrations. I'm like, no, 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 strong migrations. I get why you would say that. But for reasons, this is actually fine. And that they have configurations within it to say, like, no, this is OK. Isolator feels like it's always telling me something I want to know. 
Um, so this very quickly, I'm like, I think this might be part of my tool set moving forward on every single app forever. Uh, and actually, there's a, another gem that I used. It's made by the same team. So this is from the folks over at Evil Martians, uh, which is another Rails consultancy out there in the world. And they, the isolator gem is one thing that they've produced. And then I think the same author of it, who is an Evil Martians employee, uh, he created the after commit everywhere gem. So after commit is one of Rails's active record callbacks, but in this case, it allows you to use it everywhere, as the name implies. And so rather than actually having to take that line of code out of the database transaction block, which is naturally where we would write it, because that's how we think about the code and how we want to express it, you can just use this after commit method, wrap the call in that. So it's after commit and then a block. So either braces or do end that enqueuing of the email now just gets wrapped in that. And so what that does is it says defer this until after the transaction commits. If the transaction does not commit, if we roll it back, then don't run it. And what was nice is the actual code change when I finally submitted all of this was add the gem to the gem file. And then everywhere that we're doing the wrong thing, which running the test suite told me, I just went in and I wrapped that line in after commit and a block. And it was such a nice, clean, like I didn't have to move the code around or actually shift the lines, which was my first attempt at this. I was able to just like sort of annotate each of those lines and say like, you're special, you're special, you're special, and then I'm done. And again, the the first gem told me every case where I needed to do that. It's like, well, this this is a wonderful little outcome here. That's really nice. Yeah, how you can make the changes and then, like you said, rerun the test or rerun that gem and it lets you know what else still needs to be updated I'm intrigued where you mentioned you didn't have to move any lines, though, because I'm still envisioning, maybe I just need to look at the gym and see it, but I'm still envisioning that you have your transaction, do block, and then you're doing some things, you're updating records, and then you have your end, and then after that's when you want to enqueue the email. And with this after commit, you actually added that method call inside of the transaction, but then wrapped the call to sidekick to send to the email inside of that block. Correct. Yeah. So it's basically like saying, here's almost an anonymous function. If you think about a, a Ruby block in that nomenclature, you're saying like, here's some work to do when and if the transaction succeeds. And so it meant that I was able to keep the code in sort of the way that we as humans would talk about it, but deal with the murky details and edge cases of database transactions and sidekick and whatnot, sort of just handle it by saying like, it's almost feels like an annotation or a decoration or some something like that. But it was this, in my mind, almost like a perfect melding of like, I, is, I don't want to think about this. Oh, cool. Okay, here's a quick, easy way to deal with it, but to not have to fundamentally change how I write the code. Interesting. So I, I like all the things you're saying. I'll be honest, I'm not, I'm not totally sold. And I'm trying to think of why. I think the benefits, one, as you mentioned, it's something you don't want to have to think about, or at least signals to others that, hey, maybe you should think about this to the extent that you use after commit. And so that way you don't have these asynchronous events taking place inside of the transaction. So I like that visibility and communication to the rest of the team. Putting it inside of the transaction feels interesting. I don't know why. I feel a little weird about this. <laughs> I'm bringing my true self. <laughs> That's fair. So if we're being honest, I solved this first by finding the isolator gem. Uh, well, I, I solved it first first by just doing it manually. I went through the app and I found all the places and I was like, you know what? I, I'm worried that someone, that the next person authoring code like this, it's so easy to fall into this trap. Like this is such a subtle little thing that our brains are not thinking about. And so I had first fixed it. And so I had a diff that involved moving lots of lines of code. I moved, you know, every instance of this moved from being in the database transaction out of it. 
And that was fine. I was fine with that as a solution, but it was a little bit noisy because I was, you know, moving a bunch of lines. So then I brought in the isolator gem. I actually reset that. I went back to before I had made the fix, ran the test just to make sure isolator was actually finding every instance. They did. That was great. So I was like, all right, cool. This is better because now I have this thing that will tell anyone when this happens. So I am very happy about that because frankly, this is some like hard earned knowledge that I had to read sidekick and remember how database transactions work and convince myself of what was going on here and finally come to what i believe the solution is and now isolator is just like cool that's encapsulated and it gives a very nice um, failure message in the test suite so like excellent i really like this but still looking at it the diff the amount of code that i had to change it's like well naturally this is how we want to write this code but for reasons we can't and sort of it's it's appeasing the computer more than it's appeasing the reader or the author of the code and so then i happen to be reading through the isolator gems uh, readme and they mention the after commit everywhere gem and i was like oh that's interesting so one more time i reset and then i retried fixing it with after commit and the look of the diff there felt nice to me because the lines the lines got a little more on them, but they didn't move. And so it's like, this is how we naturally would have authored it. And now it works correctly. And I liked that. But I understand your hesitation because you're like, but the thing is, it's wrong. And so you've made the wrong not wrong anymore, but you didn't. And I, I so I, I get your hesitation. I still like the fancy version, but. Yeah, I think you you just helped me figure out my my grumpiness with it or why I'm not totally sold on it. And it was in regards to adding a dependency to avoid a noisy diff is the oversimplified version that I was processing as to, or the reason that I was a bit grumpy about adding this other gem for that. But then you also just brought a lot of other really good reasons. One thing that you said that I do really like is adding tools that help us author code in a more natural style, the way that we want to highlight this process and how this application does work and how this business logic flows. So given in that light, that makes me feel better about it. But yeah, I think that was my initial grumpiness. I was like, we, we could just, you know, it'll be a noisy diff. It's okay. Yeah, I think I, I definitely share your hesitation or you're like, hmm, this that's an interesting reason to bring more code into the application. But at the same time, I think the counterpoint that, that comes to mind for me is like, we're using Ruby because of its expressiveness. At least that's why I'm using Ruby. I really want the code that I write to be as close as possible to the thing that I would say to another human about like, oh, okay, when a user signs up for the application, we need to create a record in our system and then we need to send them an email and then we need to do this other thing. And so the closer that our code is to those words that I would use to describe to another human, the happier I am. And I will put in some pretty significant effort to sort of hold that line as long as the code can also be correct. And so like the isolator gem here does a great job of enforcing that correctness and then after commit allows me to still maintain that expressiveness and not have to think about the murky details as much or not have to reshape my code to match the murky realities of different persistence engines. But I do agree. I think it's a good thing to like look at and ask of like, is it worth it? Are you sure? And in this case, I will say, yeah, I think so. But with that amount of certainty in my voice, which is not a ton. I think this is going back to my days of working with dependency bot PRs, where every time there was an upgrade for a gym, I always ask, what, what do you do here? <laughs> like, can do we, do we need to upgrade you? Can we just remove you from the code base? So I'm, I'm fairly, 
I don't know, resistance is a strong word. I'm I'm skeptical of when we're adding stuff in and I just want to question the value that it's adding. But I want to circle back to something that you said and that it's hard-earned knowledge. And that part I understand so much where when you have gone through a fair amount of work to uncover an issue and then you want to make sure that others don't have to go through that, this is a really nice way to highlight like, hey, there's something that's tricky about computers and software here and we need to watch out for that and I want to help you look out for that versus this is just inherent information where this needs to happen outside or after that transaction. And so that makes a really nice entry point where someone can look to say, why did we add this gym? And then there's a commit message that goes with it that explains this is why we use this after commit gym because we're specifically looking to avoid this type of bug. And I love that. Yeah, I think more lines, more lines of uh, get commit message than diff on this one. So yeah, I wrote a, a short novel uh, in describing all of the features, describing the different pieces that are coming together, and then it's actually a plus twenty eight minus six diff. So it's a very small code change, but yeah, lots of lots of story captured there. And if you had just moved the lines, like you could still have that commit message, but I mean, it's not likely that someone's going to look up that get commit change or that message that went along with it because they're not going to know to blame that one. But if they look at that particular edition of after commit, they're more likely to find that historical context. So long story short, I think you have walked me through my initial grumpiness and provided some really good ways to avoid that really tricky failure mode for other developers. Well, thank you. And getting the, the Steph's seal of approval, uh, starting from <laughs> grumpy places. I feel, I feel good. All right. I'll have some special uh, Stephanie's approval stickers designed and printed for you. I hope you're not joking, because I very much want a <laughs> yellow heart that says Steph approved. <laughs> and I can put it on PRs and I can put it on the wall. <laughs> well, now I have to find a sticker designer and maker. Well, it's just a yellow heart. I can probably, I can probably handle this. I'm going to use Comic Sans. That'll be the, the approved part. <laughs> yellow hearts and comic sans for everybody <laughs> well with that absolutely fantastic callback to earlier parts of the episode uh shall we wrap up let's wrap up show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm this show is produced and edited by mandy moore if you enjoyed listening one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in itunes as it really helps other folks find the show if you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes you can reach us at at underscore bike shed or reach me on twitter at s and I'm at Chris Toomey. Or you can reach us at host at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye! Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.